Amen. And actually, we'll get the kids to stay for just one second before, uh, before they head off to the classrooms. Um, so, good morning. For those who don't know, my name is Justin Sitzma, and I'm on the pastoral staff here at Courtright. Um, before I begin my sermon this morning, um, I just have an exciting announcement. Um, so after searching for a couple months, we are pleased to announce uh, that we have hired our very own Kira Seguin as our children's ministry coordinator. So, Kira has recently graduated from the University of Guelph and will be attending Teachers College at Redeemer University this fall. Uh, Kira brings a wealth of knowledge um, from both her schooling and also a knowledge of Courtright. Uh, she's had experience over, uh, overseeing onside summer camps at Courtright and beyond the past few summers. Um, and a bachelor's degree uh, of applied science in child, youth, and family studies. So this is uh, very exciting. We're uh, so thrilled to have Kira to join our staff. This is not the first time she's joined our staff team, but uh, this is exciting because this is a whole new capacity for her. And so um, would you join me in welcoming Kira? Can you give a little wave? There she is. Give a little wave. <laughs> Perfect. All right, kids, you can go back to your classrooms now with Madeline. All right, so we are going to be reading from Galatians chapter 2 this morning. And before we do that, let's just take a moment and pause and pray. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as we read from your word, as we reflect and think upon what has been said, as we allow ourselves to be molded and shaped by the person and work of the risen Jesus, would we sense and know your nearness, and would you illuminate our path forward? Amen. So this morning our reading is from Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 to 21. Actually, over the next couple of weeks, you're going to get a glimpse at a couple different sections of Galatians. So Lindsay, my wife, who I think is taking Iris to Sunday school, so she's going to miss this, but that's okay. Um, she's preaching next Sunday, and you're not going to want to miss it because unlike me, Lindsay um, did her thesis for her Master's of Theological Studies on Galatians. So she knows way more than I do, and I am expecting some corrections when I get back. <laughs> She's like, yes. <laughs> but today's passage, I'm going to try to stay in my lane today as a, as a pastor theologian, not a, not a theologian like Lindsay. <laughs> um, today's passage concerns one of the most intense conflicts in the entirety of the early church movement between two of the most prolific ministers of the gospel, Paul and Peter. Here, Peter is called by another name. He's called by Cephas, which means rock. This letter is written in a very public, polemical kind of manner. It's this um, kind of treatise he's writing um, so that the church in uh, the Galatian region would not have a potentially larger conflict on their hands. So Paul writes these words, starting at verse 11. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, that is, James the just, brother of Jesus from the church in Jerusalem, 
So before certain men came from James, he used to eat with Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him, joined him in this hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not all acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth are not sin and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners, does that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I, have, what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. For, though the, for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. This is the word of the Lord. I love passages like this. This isn't one of those times where like, you know, Alex like threw me under the bus by giving me one of the difficult ones. This is, I, ch I chose this one because I think it's fun. Um, they're, they're so thought provoking. I, I had so many questions as I was approaching this morning. You know, why, what did Peter do exactly that was so grievous? Why did Paul call him out in the manner that he did? What, what was Peter's side of the story? You know, what, if, if he could you know, respond to Paul, and maybe he did, if he could respond to him, what would he have said? What can we learn from Peter and Paul and their conflict? And I think most importantly, and we're gonna get to this in a moment, but how do we infuse the gospel of Jesus into our disagreements and conflicts with one another? Those are some questions we're going to kind of explore this morning. So let's talk about the issue by kind of first setting the stage as to how we got here. So Paul and Peter are among the most prolific and well-known ministers of the gospel. If you consider the book of Acts, um, you know, the book of Acts of the Apostles, the birth of the early church, you see the first half basically is all about the work that the Holy Spirit is doing in and through Peter. The latter half is all about the work that the Holy Spirit is doing in and through Paul. These are like the two main guys. These two are heavyweights. Both, yes, they have their faults and their failings, but both did remarkable things by the power of the Holy Spirit working through them. So in Acts chapter 10 and 11, Peter has this incredible revelation 
from Jesus himself, the resurrected, ascended Christ. He has a vision of unclean food, mammals and birds and reptiles, all sorts of things that the Jews were not allowed to eat by their dietary law. And the voice of Jesus called out to Peter, and Peter knew this voice. He walked with Jesus for years. And the voice of Jesus said, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Peter refuses on the grounds that he says, I, I've never disobeyed Jewish dietary law. I'm not going to start now. But Jesus responds by saying this. He says, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. Now, this wasn't really about food. Peter would soon, in a moment, see Gentile or non-Jewish followers of Jesus experience signs that they too had the spirit of God. And there were outward manifestations of the spirit working among Gentile believers. This was confounding to Peter. So Peter was left with this irrefutable evidence that Jesus's mission was not solely for the Jewish people, but for all people, disciples of all nations, to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. The message of Christ's love, his life, his death, his resurrection were meant for all. Now, Peter had heard Jesus talk about this. Matthew 28, Acts chapter 1. He cognitively knew this. But if you tracked with the story of Peter, he can admittedly be a little thick sometimes. So it takes this vision and this experience of seeing the Holy Spirit move among these Gentile believers for Peter and his counterparts to recognize that God had granted the gift of salvation to all people groups. And for a little while, it seemed, Peter truly lived out this reality, that he would enjoy table fellowship with Gentile believers. He would not show partiality for Jew or Gentile. Peter's a little like us sometimes, though. Old habits die hard. So in Antioch, Paul and Peter, they cross paths, and Paul discovers, much to his dismay, that Peter had abandoned this table fellowship that he was having with the Gentiles. Now, just to be clear, table fellowship was not simply enjoying a meal with people. That was a part of it. But the Lord's Supper was a part of the table fellowship. Communion, it was a much more meal-oriented practice. It was communion with God. It was communion with one another remembering Jesus' death in the same way that his disciples did in that upper room in Jerusalem over a meal. So Peter, whether he meant to or not, he began this ill-conceived practice of having different tiers of Christ followers. The Jews being in this upper echelon with everyone else being second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. And Paul calls him out for it, rightfully so. Paul says to the Galatian churches uh, in verse 11, he says, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. I opposed him to his face. So Paul had already confronted Peter one-on-one about this issue and was now sharing about this issue publicly because it was a public issue. This was something that needed to be addressed. 
So he now brings this situation forward as a little bit of a case study, and he spends the latter portion of this segment of Scripture giving kind of a theological reflection on this occurrence. One of the questions that I asked at the beginning was, why, why did Peter do what he did? Paul says this in verse 12. He says, For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with Gentiles. But when they, were, when they arrived, he began to draw back, separate himself from the Gentiles because he was, keyword, afraid. He was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in this hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. Peter caved in to fear. He had been eating with the Gentiles, treating them as equal partners in the gospel. And this group called the circumcision group, weird name in my humble opinion, weird name. Um, they came on the scene and caused Peter to make this severe lapse in judgment. The circumcision party, otherwise known as the Judaizers, which I'm going to call them from here on out for obvious reasons, um, they were Jewish Christians who upheld all the Jewish laws. We can infer from this passage that this group wasn't just kind of peer pressuring Peter. It, they weren't just kind of going to Peter like, come on, Peter, we just got to follow all the Jewish laws. It, they were probably threatening him with violence or worse. This group was known for its militance and its strictness. And this group also wanted Gentile converts to abide by all of the Jewish law, including circumcision, hence the name. It's also possible that, con that the concern among those Judaizers was that if other Jews, like non-Messianic Jews, Jews who did not believe in Jesus, if they found out that these Jewish Christians were fraternizing with the enemy, that they, all of their efforts toward converting those Jews to Christianity would have been thwarted. It became kind of a purity test. Either you follow our customs or you're a traitor. Peter didn't want to be a traitor. Rather than the emboldened Peter that we see in Acts 2 at the dawn of the church of Christ, we see a weak and hypocritical Peter, one who became unwilling to stand up for his once strongly held convictions. This is Peter's story in a lot of ways. It's a story of bold leadership, the kind of boldness that we see in the early church in the first half of Acts. And it's also a story of timidity and weakness. Think about Peter's denial of Christ during the Passion narrative. Think about Peter's lack of faith as Jesus walks on water and Peter starts walking out to him and then loses sight of Christ and, and crashes into the water. Paul says to Peter in verse 14, he says, You are a Jew, yet you, yet you live like Gentiles and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? This is textbook hypocrisy. Paul felt compelled to address this because if this had been left unaddressed, this could have caused a massive rift between the Jews and the Gentile followers. And in this region, you had these churches that were just trying to figure out who they were. They were trying to figure out their identity. This would have been entirely unhelpful. So in the remaining verses, we kind of read what Paul has to say to Peter, and it's a theological reflection on what Paul was most concerned about and what is of primary concern for us as followers of Jesus today. And the gospel implications are totally significant. 
Paul wanted to reclaim this basic idea of our faith that we are saved and justified by faith, not by the law. Paul makes clear that the gift of salvation is not about anything that we have done, not about perfect observance or regulations, not about doing and saying and believing everything perfectly or correctly, but simply by faith. There's not much, so there's a lot that could be said about Jewish law observance. Christians tend to denigrate the law which to modern-day Jews who observe the law, they can feel a bit dismissed and hurt because they see the law as vital and important. And I think it's actually good to say (laughs) that the laws are important. The laws are good. Paul was an observer of the law. Jesus was a strict observer of the law. Yes, he had some... some, uh, critiques of certain interpretations of the law, but he did not break Jewish law. It is easy for us as moderns to dismiss the law as just something that no longer concerns us. And yet, if you look at your Bible, how much of your Bible is the Hebrew Bible? It is, it's the majority. It's two-thirds. There's, they're not there so that we can kind of look at it and sort of, you know, stare at it with you know, judgment and uh, some archaic, irrelevant text. There is so much in, this, in these Hebrew scriptures that are good and right and just. There is much that gives us guidance on how to live among one another, how to care for refugees and the poor and the widowed and the marginalized. God's breath is on those words. We learned that last week. God's breath is on those words. Yes, there are portions that we have to look at with fresh eyes and portions that contextually are not relevant the way they once were. But the scriptures that Jesus read and memorized were and continue to be good. But those words are not God. The point is that the law cannot save us. We cannot strive our way into the kingdom of God by right living. It's impossible. We need a source from outside of ourselves so that we can die to ourselves and allow a new life to take over. That's that poignant and vivid image that Paul says in verse 20, where he says, I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. If we have put our faith in Jesus, that is our reality as well. I have died to self. Jesus lives, therefore I live. This is why what Paul saw Peter doing, why it felt so grievous to him. He saw Peter essentially adding on to the gospel and creating division where Jesus had unified, where once the only entry to the kingdom of God was by grace through faith, Peter was acting as though that were now inadequate. The result of this whole debacle between Paul and Peter can actually be found in the book of Acts. 
Acts is an amazing thing when you can kind of like map out, um, you know, the, the epistles, the writings, and kind of map it out to the events that are happening in Acts. It's a really incredible thing. So um, in Acts chapter 15, there's something that happens called the Council in Jerusalem. Here, the discussion around the barriers to Christian faith came to an end. The Judaizers were doing their thing and insisting upon circumcision and all these customs. Peter seemed to have reacted accordingly to Paul's critique and rebuke. So he was, Peter seemed to have kind of responded well, which is awesome. And he's now working alongside Paul and Barnabas and these other church leaders to ensure that there would no longer be any major obstacles to inhibit those who want to follow Jesus and join the church. It reinforced what we know about the gospel, that we are saved by grace through faith, that it is an unmerited gift that none of us can boast about. Time doesn't permit us to read this, but there's one key verse. Um, I'd encourage you to read it on your own, but there's one key verse that sort of sums up the result of Peter and Paul's conflict here. In that James, again, James the just, the brother of Jesus, he says regarding Gentile believers in um, Acts 15, chapter 19, he says, it is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. This was revolutionary. It is revolutionary. This is the culmination of Peter's revelation, um, Peter's revelation about, Je- about the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10 and his lapse in judgment and the ensuing conflict that, we experience, that Paul and Peter experience in Galatians 2. The early Christian leaders finally determined that they could not put circumcision or some other ritual as an entry or requirement for faith. They had to go back to the basics. We are saved by grace through faith. If someone has set the bar too high, they're either selling you something or they're a cult. The gift of God is free to all who would receive it. Amen? Amen. So just as Paul theologically reflected on this incident, I want us to do the same. This is not just a case study for us to examine and parse and insert ourselves into. This is an opportunity to see how the gospel can be infused even into conflict. I mean, think about it. Paul calls out Peter, and the eventual result is that Peter, Paul, countless other church leaders committed to unity. They remove these barriers um, that allow Gentile followers to follow Christ. The result is more people in the kingdom of God, the more people experiencing and reflecting the love of God through Jesus. Only God could have taken conflict and spat out what happened here. Like, that's amazing. It's a remarkable thing. So when it comes to conflict, I want to ask a couple questions that we're going to consider. First one is this. What human-made barriers has the church accidentally or purposefully created for faith in Christ? This was Peter and the Judaizers' greatest issue, but I suspect it's still an issue sometimes. The church throughout history has had diverse views about nearly every facet of our faith. That continues to this day. That's why we have so many denominations and branches of Christianity. The council at Jerusalem 
the result of Peter and Paul's conflict, desire to make entry level to Christianity low. Think about something like Romans 10, 9, and 10, where it says, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, that's that early creed, the first Christian creed that we held on to. Three words, Jesus is Lord. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. However, we're really good at adding barriers. We can do this in really um, kind of almost unknown ways. We can do this with the language that we speak sometimes. Too much Christian lingo that confuses people, and I've probably been guilty of that in my sermon. We can do this by obscuring facets of our gathered worship You know, we don't explain the different parts of our liturgy very well. Last uh, spring, spring 2021, we actually went through a series where we went through all the different parts of our gathered worship because we don't want anything to be confusing. You know, why do we do a prayer of confession? Why do we have a call to worship? What are all these different parts of what we're doing? And so if you are newer here and you'd love to check that out, just kind of go on YouTube and look back to kind of um, May and June of 2021 and you can find out that. We can do this also by adding moral barriers. You know, we determine whether someone is worthy of Christian community by their actions. It's one thing to talk about the sin from the past. It's another to deal with the messiness of someone's current reality. Addiction, divorce, sex, etc. I just want to say to us this morning that we are not tainted when we welcome and include those who don't look or act like us. This is what the Judaizers were chiefly concerned with. They had this standard of holiness that a Gentile believer could never match. They could never follow it. And we, too, can add barriers by simply making it hard for someone to get connected. You know, they show up to church, maybe they're new-ish, they've been around for a little while, they want to get involved in a group or serve somewhere, and what ends up happening is we get comfortable and we make no room for them. And if you're here and you're listening and you've experienced that, I just want to say I'm sorry. Christian community is messy sometimes. Barriers can happen because we have intentionally chosen to be gatekeepers and create them, or I think most often because we have unintentionally just gotten too comfortable. For most well-intentioned churches, it's the latter, that we've just gotten too comfortable. But this is not simply something that the church does because the church is made up of people. The church is made up of individuals. I am one of them. So I want to direct this question at us as individuals now. Who have you excluded from fellowship? For one reason or another, you maybe decided that they're just too different. You've decided in your heart that they don't meet your standards that maybe you've addressed or unaddressed. Maybe they like weird music, like that worship and outreach guy that Courtright has on staff. Maybe they're unvaccinated, or maybe they're vaccinated. Maybe they support political party X or Y or Z. Maybe they've expressed support for a cause or justice issue that you don't agree with. Maybe they believe something about Jesus or the Bible that you've determined is incorrect. 
You know, a few weeks ago, Lindsay and Iris and I, we went up to a family camp near Beaverton uh, called Fair Havens. Anyone been to Fair Havens before? Yeah, cool. So um, great place. Um, we've been going up there yearly since Iris was like a year and a half old, and it's just been a, a beautiful time each time we go, and this year was no exception. Um, I did have to stretch myself this year, though, and I'll tell you why. So at our accommodations, we had a communal fire pit. We weren't expecting that, but we had a, you know, a communal fire pit where others from this block of rooms would join us each night. And so we were you know, sharing s'mores and all this with, uh, with people that we had never met before, and it was quite beautiful. But something happens around a campfire, doesn't it? People just open up, and they just get to sharing, and, and we all did that. We had a lovely time. But it became very clear that the political divides of the past couple years have taken its toll on Christians, myself included. Out of respect for those folks, I'm not going to get into the specifics, but you can probably take some wild guesses about the things that have divided the church, politically speaking, over the past couple years, right? If you can guess it, you're probably correct. So... In these moments, I'm faced with an internal decision. And Lindsay told me one night, she's like, I, I wanted to go to bed early, but I was like, I, I was worried to leave you out alone there. <laughs> because admittedly, I can be a little opinionated sometimes. So I'm faced with an internal decision. And thankfully, you know, we were tracking. We were on the same page. Do I choose to vilify them as I admittedly have done in the past? Or do I see them through a different lens and choose to love them the way that I believe God loves them? With the help of the Holy Spirit, I decided on the latter. I was amazed to find this little shift in my heart take place from self-righteousness and judgment to humility and curiosity. It is easy to judge and denigrate and even hate people who believe differently, even Christians who believe differently. It is much harder to follow the way of Christ with no partiality. I am so far from perfect on this, but I am grateful for the Holy Spirit nudging Lindsay and I so that we could see them how God sees them. So the last question underpinning all of this, this is going back to this idea of how does the gospel infuse this? So the question is this, how can we allow the gospel to reframe our conflicts? And when I say the gospel, I want to make clear what I mean by that. I'm talking about the simple gospel, that you are fearfully and wonderfully made by God, that God loves you. That though we were still sinners, Jesus died on the cross as a ransom for many. That Jesus was raised to life on the third day and has conquered sin and death so that we may too conquer sin and death as siblings, as friends, and as co-heirs with Christ, both now and for eternity. When I say the gospel, that is what I'm talking about. How can that shape our conflict? So first things first, I want you to note that I started by saying that you are fearfully or reverently, wonderfully made. God created the world and God created you with great love and care. God loves you. God loves everyone else too, even those you find difficult to love. I know that's like, you know, 
kindergarten stuff, but it bears repeating. That's got to be the starting point. That has to be the starting point. Every gospel presentation I ever heard as a kid, it didn't start with that. It started with, hey, did you know you're a terrible sinner? It's like, well, that's true. You know what? As, an, as a mature adult, I can be like, yeah, that's absolutely true. I, am, I, am a, I, made a, I made a lot of dumb mistakes in my life. It is evident that I am a sinner. The problem is, when we start there, we see ourselves and in turn everyone else as merely just sinners. It changes something about how we engage with both ourselves and others. I was and still am a sinner in need of a savior. But I was also a child in need of a father. I was a creation in need of his creator. I was an image-bearing human in need of the image of the invisible God that is Jesus. So to allow the gospel to reframe our conflicts, we, we make the first thing the first thing. That the person that I am in conflict with, the person that I disagree with, is a beloved image bearer of the Most High God. Amen? This helps me keep in check when I veer toward dehumanizing someone or when I sense anger kind of rising up in me. Because when I get angry, I no longer see people as human, but rather I see them as targets that I need to pierce with my correctness. Then we move to the sin part. But even then, we need to put ourselves on the same playing field. It becomes less about their sin and their mistakes that Christ died for, but about our sin, our collective sin. That's one of the reasons why we do prayers of confession, because we have all fallen short. We all have flawed perspectives. We all have disordered desires. We all just want to do what we can to pragmatically win the argument. We all need the grace that the cross of Jesus offers us. And then we move on to new life. We'll read that verse in Galatians 2, chapter 20, or verse 20 again. He says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I have a new life in Christ a life marked by the resurrection and the indwelling of the Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit, when I am walking in step with the Holy Spirit, allowing God to guide me in this way, I'm going to infuse new life wherever I go. Every conversation is marked by that new life. This will cause me to pause and reflect before I go just guns a-blazing into a fight, to extend the same love and grace that Christ extended me. After all, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And finally, and this is only if the person that you're in conflict with is a follower of Jesus, but see them as people that you are co-heirs with and that you are going to spend eternity with, so figure out how to get along. <laughs> You're going to one day be together in the new creation. We know that in heaven, we're given the promise in Revelation chapter 21 that God is going to wipe away every tear, that there's no death or mourning or crying or pain. And conflict causes all of those things. But that is not our future reality. 
and it doesn't have to be our reality now either. We can bring the new life of the resurrection and the new creation into our conflicts now. We can allow that to shape how we treat one another now. We can bring a little glimpse of heaven into our conflicts now. So here's what we're going to do. As we close out our time of teaching, we're going to take a few moments to be still and reflect and if you're comfortable, I'd invite you to take, take this moment now and close your eyes. I'm going to walk you through a couple phrases and just sit and listen and be still in this moment. Holy Spirit, we trust that you've been at work in our hearts as we've been listening. Holy Spirit, please guide us into all truth. Holy Spirit, would you bring to mind someone with whom we have been in conflict with? A family member, a fellow congregant, perhaps someone in this room, a person that we fight with on social media, someone from work or school. Bring to mind the conflict at hand. Whether that person is a Christian or not, Holy Spirit, would you lead us into seeing them as a fellow image bearer, beloved by God? Would you gently, lovingly remind us of our own shortcomings, our sin, so that we might approach this person without arrogance or self-righteousness? Would the reality of Jesus' resurrection and the new life that we have in Christ saturate our difficult conversations. May it compel us toward life and not death. And would you help us to see everyone we encounter as people that you desire to redeem people that we may potentially be in fellowship with forever in eternity. May that help us to work toward unity, the unity that Paul and Peter experienced at the council in Jerusalem.
May it be so, Lord.